Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. If we want to be saved and enter into eternal life, a complete and total change must take place in us. And that can only take place from the work of Christ alone and by the gift of his Holy Spirit. But as we are in our natural state, we are not fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We should never assume, however, that the way that we are as sinners, that God created us this way. Because all that God creates is perfect. The darkness and evil in every sinful heart comes not from God, but from the evil one and from our own sinful inclinations. But from the beginning, it was not so. The Holy Scriptures say God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. The Scriptures say, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Therefore, man was created from the beginning perfect. His understanding was a bright light. Man's will was God's will. His whole being mirrored God's own image and understanding. That is, God's goodness and mercy and patience was reflected and lived out in man. Imagine that. There was holiness in man's will. There was goodness in all of our desires. And for man, God was his highest good. Man lived in this perfect communion in the love of God and perfect innocence and holiness. And he was such a bright reflection of God that man could recognize God in himself. And God, in turn, delighted in man, created after his own likeness. That was the golden age of humanity. So, so how sad and how short this blessed time lasted. Because our first parents, they did not remain content with this implanted glory. But they rose up against God and transgressed his commandment and rebelled against the God who made them and loved them. In that single act of disobedience, man hurled himself from his height of glory into a dreadful pit of darkness and death and decay. Man lost the image of God and became a reflection instead of the prince of darkness, the evil one. If man had not sinned and not rebelled against God, man would have transmitted the glory of God to his children. But now his sin, with its misery, descends from generation to generation to generation. As we just sang in that hymn, All mankind fell in Adam's fall. One common sin infects us all. From one to all, the curse descends, and over all, God's wrath impends. This is the sad story that needs to be told. And there can be no whitewash in it, nor should we try. We live in a fallen world. Besides just wars, parades, and malls, and schools have become violent places. The corruption in this world is so deep but let us not fool ourselves, because Jesus identifies the problem. 
the root cause of all trouble and all violence and discord in the whole world, Jesus tells us straight up where it all comes from. When he says, for out of the heart, that's mine and yours, come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. There's this little story that I love. In 1905, the Daily News, a newspaper in London, asked famous authors around the world what the greatest problem was in the whole world. And so renowned thinkers wrote in to opine on what that problem was. Predictably, they blamed politics, the economy, and the lack of civility in public discourse. Probably sounds familiar. But G.K. Chesterton, the great Christian apologist, came back with the shortest answer, the shortest essay in the whole newspaper. What's the greatest problem in the world? His answer, two words, I am. I am. I am the greatest problem in the world. Mea culpa, as the phrase goes. I am responsible. It's my fault. It's to confess that the disorder in the world is a consequence or a working out of the disorder in the sinful heart. All of ours. G.K. Chesterton's short two-word essay in that newspaper corresponds to the prayer of the tax collector when he prayed, God be merciful to me. Not a sinner, but he actually says in the text, the sinner, as if you were the only one around. But the Pharisee in that parable, and remember he didn't pray in that way, did he? Instead he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, cheaters, sinners, adulterers, or like this tax collector. And then the Pharisee takes a cursory look at the commandments and God's law. He pats himself on the back and says to himself, job well done. Dear friends, this sort of self-righteousness, this sort of self-righteous thinking clings to all of us by nature. And it doesn't even matter if you're a Lutheran and your whole theology is against it. Self-righteous, pharisaical thinking and self-righteous, pharisaical living clings to us all by nature. And the old Adam in us just won't let it go. This self-righteous thinking that clings to us is the cause of all of our arrogance and pride and hypercritical attitudes toward those around us, whether you know it or not. And underneath it all is a works-righteous faith which trusts in self. But it's altogether a wrong faith, and it happens to be a faith that damns and threatens hell. The thinking goes that if I can fulfill the law of God to some extent, at least as much as possible, even with my own powers, however weak they may be, well, that counts for something. That will satisfy the requirement of righteousness that God imposes on those who want to be received by him in heaven. But what does Christ say in response to all of this? In our gospel, Jesus says, For I tell you, 
Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And with these words, dear friends, Jesus, he strikes down to the ground and shatters all thoughts of those who believe they can somehow earn their way into heaven and God's favor. And the thing is, is that the Pharisees, they did try their darndest as much as was within their power. They sought to fulfill the literal reading of the law. But what they failed to understand was that the law is not an outward matter. The law is a spiritual matter. And therefore, it requires more than an outward action, but a whole inner life along with it. The law, being spiritual, therefore requires the entire person, the whole person, body and soul. The law's requirement demands all of our thoughts, all of our words, and all of our deeds. According to the law, only the person who has fulfilled it in its true spiritual sense, even with its strictest demands, is righteous before God. So you can see, therefore, how our Lord lays this out in, for his hearers in our gospel today. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that Whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus takes one commandment and shows us the true spiritual intent, that the origin and root of murder lies not in the hand but in the heart. Martin Luther, Luther, reflecting on this commandment to not murder, writes the following. It comes from the large catechism. This commandment, to not murder, is violated not only when we do evil, but also when we have the opportunity to do good to our neighbors and to prevent, protect, and save them from suffering bodily harm or injury, but fail to do so. If you send a naked person away when you could clothe them, you have let him freeze to death. If you see anyone who is suffering from hunger and do not feed him, you have let him starve. Likewise, if you see anyone who is condemned to death or in similar peril and you do not save him, although you had the means and the ways and resources to do so, you have killed him. It will be of no help for you to, have, to use an excuse, for if you withheld your love from them and robbed them of the kindness by means of which their lives might have been saved. So you see that the fifth commandment, not to murder, is just not prohibiting the act of killing, but it goes far deeper because it's aimed at turning the hearts and hands of Christian disciples to the needs of our neighbors, to help them, and to support them in every physical need. This commandment demands a perfect fulfillment. God asks us to love our neighbor with a perfect love, but it's a love that we have not rendered. Likewise, a few verses later, Jesus, he goes after the sixth commandment too, and he outdoes Moses. Adultery doesn't just mean sleeping with someone who's not your spouse. Again, it's a spiritual matter. 
Jesus says, whoever looks at a woman with lust or an impure thought has already broken the commandment. Folks, the law forbids all sins without exception. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Therefore, anyone who can be accused of even a single sin is not righteous before God. The world says no one is perfect, but Christ says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word that they utter. The world would have you believe that you're entitled to your own thoughts, but the law says the Lord will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Therefore, by works of the law alone, no one can attain the righteousness that avails before God. The law, no doubt, reveals the righteousness that God demands from us, but it gives no power to produce it. It shows us our death, but the law can never make us alive. Paul writes to the Galatians, If a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the the law. That's why the gospel today is so wonderful. It is so filled with comfort. Because the whole Sermon on the Mount is about one thing. It's about the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Jesus, he is the one and only one who fulfilled everything the law required of man. And it's not only that Christ never hurt or harmed his neighbor, but he helped and supported him in every physical need, even laying down his life that we might live. And regards the sixth commandment, which our Lord touches on just verses later, it was he, Christ alone, who never had an impure thought or an unchaste thought, but lived a life of perfect fidelity to his bride, the church, even laying down his life for her. All the commandments for you, Jesus fulfilled. You see, therefore, that God's law is more than a list of do's and don'ts or moral imperatives. It is the perfect will of God for man. And God's will for man is the life and love of Christ Jesus. For this one man fulfilled the law actively by keeping all of its requirements by loving God and loving man perfectly. And Jesus also fulfilled the law passively, that is, by suffering the punishment that the law required of sinful man. Jesus received the punishment for sin that we deserved. The law reveals our sins, also that we might receive Christ and his righteousness as our very own. That's the point. Through faith in the word of the gospel, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But it's all a setup that we would see that Christ's death for us on the cross is our salvation, that Jesus' death is our righteousness, and that our only righteousness and that it is the only righteousness that avails before God in heaven. This, dear friends, is the righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees because it fulfilled the law and because it's grounded in God's self-sacrificing love for sinful man. 
The scriptures say that our own righteousness is as filthy rags. But instead, we are found in him, in Christ. Not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. This alone is the righteousness that saves. And therefore, God, in his perfect holiness, can accept imperfect man because this sin-ridden man has in Christ a perfect Savior. A perfect Savior in whom the law was perfectly upheld, justice was executed, and man redeemed through Christ. Saved by faith in him who was crucified for us and paid our debt to the last penny. Jesus did that. And having tasted the sweetness of forgiveness at the throne of God, being reconciled to God and made friends with the angels, we can no longer nurse grudges against anyone in our hearts, against our neighbors or against our friends or even against our own enemies, because they too have been redeemed by the same Jesus Christ. They too have been redeemed by his blood, who has given his life for them. And we share a Father in heaven who has reconciled the whole world to himself, and he abundantly pardons all. This new life, dear friends, this new life comes from baptism, comes in the life that Paul describes for us in Romans chapter 6, in our epistle this morning. Baptism actually joins us to the death and resurrection of Jesus. And in baptism, we are clothed in the very righteousness of Christ. This is the change that was needed in us. This is the change that is needed in us for eternal life and salvation. For in the water and in the word and in the bread and in the wine, there is refreshment that truly changes us from inside out so that we would forgive as God forgives, so that we would love as God loves, and so that we would reflect his image in the world. For in Christ, the golden age of humanity has come and actually reaches its fulfillment. And at last, we can be the ones whom God has always intended us to be. In the name of Jesus, amen. May the peace of Christ, which surpasses all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.